Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So it's first a, a pleasure and an honor to be sharing the Dharma with, with all of you tonight here at the Forest Refuge. <clears throat> How's the, uh, the sound? Is it loud enough? It's okay. <clears throat> Wanted to start off the talk with a, a passage um, that I love from uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi, one of the all-time classic Dharma books. He says, in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse, will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in practice, you'll find out, whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of meditation practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you'll have a big problem. This is not right understanding. If you practice in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find that the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you'll find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? 
unless you're somebody who can sit in full lotus and uh, just has a, an easy route. <clears throat> Don't worry, there's hope for you yet, if that's so. I wanted to uh, talk tonight uh, about the comparing mind and the judging mind with this first sharing of the Dharma. <clears throat> this is something, if you find that you get caught in it sometimes, uh, you have a lot of company. Um, the Buddha calls this tendency to compare um, the conceit of I am. And you might be comforted to know that um, it's there even at the third stage of enlightenment. If you're familiar with the, the four stages in the classical Theravadan, the stream enterer and the once returner and the non-returner and the fully enlightened being the arhat. At the third stage of enlightenment, pretty rarefied atmosphere, there's still this tendency to compare and judge. <clears throat> so if you find yourself lost in, in comparing, you can just think of it yourself as, well, I'm no higher than third stage at least. Yeah. <laughs> and this is uh, one translation of uh, Buddha's teaching from the Sutta Nipata. <clears throat> he says, one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason is lost in dispute. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. <clears throat> For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp at views and philosophical opinions like these, they wander about in the world annoying people. <clears throat> <laughs> and you probably don't have to think very far to to realize the one that gets most annoyed is ourselves. <clears throat> have you seen it in your, your practice? Some of you have been here for a month or two months or maybe even longer and some who've just arrived. <clears throat> it doesn't escape most, most people, most yogis, whether you're just starting to practice or you've been here for a while. Have you noticed just uh, when it might come up for you? <clears throat> Often it can, uh, it can come up in the more um, social situations if there are, if you could say that here in the forest refuge, uh, like at the, the dining table, <clears throat> a very social place in this deep silence, you, know, you can see, oh, how much did they put on their plate? Oh my goodness. Or 
wow, look at how mindful they are. You know, or who do they think they are, Miss Mindfulness over there? You know? Or walking as you are doing your walking. It's, it's one thing to, to walk and you're all by yourself. If there's somebody, if you're in the walking room and somebody else comes in, do you notice just a little bit more awareness that there's somebody else there? And maybe how they're walking or how they're not walking. And it's amazing that the mind can have a judgment about anything. If somebody is walking at a normal pace, it's like, gosh, they're just so natural. They're not trying to impress anybody. You know, I wish I could be like that. Or don't they get it? Why don't they just slow down? You know, it can go either way. Mm. I remember in one, uh, one of my early retreats um, doing walking meditation. And in, I, I used to, not so much these days, but I, because I don't think I, my body can do it, but I used to really be into slow walking. It was like this game that I play with myself. And just so, sw- I'm sure many of you know how sweet it is when you're just really in that rhythm and every step is just so delicate and precise. And I'd be all by myself walking and just really getting into uh, lifting, moving, placing. Somebody else would come into my space and all of a sudden there'd be a whole different reality and I started to to note it. I, you know, I did a lot of, have done a lot of mental noting in, in my practice and just to be honest with my experience, I'd, I'd start noti- noting lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, you know, because that was what was happening, you know, I, it was humbling to see. When does it happen for you? <clears throat> and how do you relate to it when you see it? <clears throat> and particularly in our culture where those who are from the States, uh, such a competitive culture. It's one of the... Um, one of the challenges being in this country, you know, where a number one, where a number one, how painful and such a, an individualistic society, who's the best? And whether it's your basketball team, my team is the best right now, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> just happens to be. Mm, or your mm, class or your background or your city or your accomplishments or your body or your mind. You know, there's that notion superior, inferior, 
equal to, you notice in that, in that passage that I read where the Buddha says, equal to is also this conceit of I am. It's not just, oh, I'm better than or I'm not as good as. Equal to is also the comparing mind because there's that sense of um, separation and reification. Um, even in your shortcomings, you can have a comparison in mind. When I was in college, I got into a lot of existential philosophy and it was like you know, a badge of honor to see how screwed up you were. You know? you know, I'm really deep because I'm really messed up. Yeah. Mm. Oh, how shallow, they're happy. <clears throat> I've changed around on that one. <clears throat> Competitive practice. Um, and I hope you can, uh, as we explore this, just uh, keep a, a, a sense of lightness around it. Just, just how prevalent it is. <clears throat> this is, uh, I'll share with you happens even uh, when you're in the Dharma seat, um, the judging mind and the comparing mind. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. Um, if probably most of you are familiar, just really uh, one of the most respected uh, monastics and uh, Ajahn Chah's first Western um, disciple and Dharma heir, really. <clears throat> Jack Cornfield's kind of elder brother when, when Jack first uh, practiced uh, with Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Sumedho, he says, um, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight or nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai all of this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho, you give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, the self-consciousness that I'd feel. And fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. Now one time at a ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up till that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. And with Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat, 
and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. (laughs) Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and really bowl them over with some scintillating stuff. Entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at all this self-consciousness the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during talks of so many years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. I had my own version of this as I started uh, giving talks. This is uh, in the um, early 80s and uh, we'd have these uh, big Uh, retreats down at uh, Southern California, Yucca Valley, still do, um, with 150 people or so, sometimes 175 people. And uh, I'd be um, giving um, talk, be on the same team as um, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg. And Joseph would give a talk as... I'm sure most of you have heard many times, just so deep and clear as a bell, just right to the heart of the matter. And Jack would give a talk and weave a spell over everyone and just kind of hypnotize them with such beautiful dharma. Sharon would give a talk and people would be weeping from the metta and all. And then I had to go on, right? And I knew if I was sitting in the audience, I'd be saying, get that guy off and get Goldstein back on. You know, It was really painful. Mm. And I went, while I was going through this, this learning process of being in this seat, I went to um, speak to Ramdas, who was uh, uh, one of my main mentors and and teachers and I said this is really really hard you know it's it's just so clear I'm not who they are you know and uh, he said something to me that was so helpful to this day I remember it he said you know uh, you might stop trying to be Joseph Goldstein he's he's already taken why don't you just be the best Jamie Barris you can be? I was Jamie in those days. Why don't you just be the best Jamie Barris you can be? You, know, you might find that you have something to offer just by who you are, and you might even like it. It took me a while, but uh, after, after some time, I kind of got, oh, we all have our own unique voices and that comparing 
mind is so deadly and painful and it keeps whatever purity of heart that I wanted to share blocked. Mm. This comparing mind, where does it come from? We can either be comparing ourselves to others or we can compare ourselves, our current version of ourselves, to either our idealized version or what was. Sometimes people start a retreat and they remember how it was at the very end of their last retreat. You know, that when you just finally settle down and things get really sweet, it's the, it's the hook that brings you back. You know? And then you begin the next retreat and sometimes you forget that there's a settling in period of sleepiness and restlessness and aches in the body and busy mind. And there you are comparing how it was at the end of the last retreat. Or maybe, maybe you had the grace to experience some very delicious, sweet meditation two days ago and everything just fell into place. Wow, I finally got it. (laughs) And then, oh, how did I lose it? What did I do? Mm. Mm. I'm just... mm. Uh, I'm I'm remembering a a story that I'll I'll share now. When I, on my very first retreat, this is in uh, 1974 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, before before, uh, IMS, uh, I fell into one of those really amazing sittings. It was the first time, like, it didn't matter if the bell ever rang. I was breathing in, the universe was breathing out, I was breathing out, the universe was breathing in, you know, and it was so cool. And I, I went to, um, I, I couldn't wait to, to tell Joseph, you know, wow, I think I got it. <laughs> but between that sweet meditation and the interview two days later, um, I experienced every single mind state except clarity from exhilaration to crashing and sleepiness and confusion and what did I do? And, and I went to the interview and I said, I had it a couple of days ago and I lost it. How do I get it back? And then he told me this story. He writes about this in in, uh, one of his books. When he was practicing in in Asia, Bagaya, at one point in his practice, everything just fell into place. And for a couple of months, it was just clarity. And his mind was clear. His body was filled with light. And then he had to go back to the... um, to the States and visit family and, uh, you know, take care of stuff. And he didn't practice quite as much, but um, when he came back to, to uh, Bodh Gaya, 
he remembered very well how it had been. He was telling me this and he said, uh, I sat down and my, my mind was like mud and my body was like twisted steel. And then he said, I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. And then he leaned forward and he said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. Thank you very much, Joseph. Uh, it was so, I was so fortunate to get that on my first retreat. He said, just be with things the way they are. That's, that's the deal. But this comparing to either some idealized standard or some experience that you had or somebody around you, um, it's, it's rooted in somehow not being enough. Not just this moment is, is not enough, but I'm not enough in some way. And I should, if I got it together, if I could really be a good practitioner, um, I would be able to, you can fill in the blank, Mm-mm. this conceit of I am, thinking that I have control over my experience. I should be a hindrance-free yogi. Mm. Whatever your idea of a hindrance-free or a good practices, and we can all have our ideas. I, I went on one early retreat. I was, uh, everybody around me was, was going through these deep emotional experiences and boxes of tissues were kind of flying out. And I was just with my breath in and out. You know? And I, went, I thought I was kind of missing out on something. And I, I went to Joseph and I said, look, uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm doing it right, but I, I'm just here with my breath and I don't know if I'm avoiding something, and, uh, but you know, no emotions. And he said, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough, yeah. <laughs> which it did. But we can have some kind of idea, either a lot of emotional, deep material, or none, or whatever your idea, it's just an idea, but it rules our perception of our practice just by that belief. And it is rooted in somehow, I should be able to control my experience that I'm not enough. One of the great blessings in my own practice was when the, the thought occurred to me, I remember just the retreat and where it happened, where I realized I don't have control over this mind. I don't have really any control over this mind. I have input, I have some things I can do to train it, but what happens within any sitting is completely out of my control. If I did, I'd just have sweet, delicious, clear sittings all the time, but that's not how it worked. But when I realized I don't have control over how mindful I am or how concentrated I am, 
it was so freeing because then I saw the one thing I do have control or input is, is to bring a sincerity of effort to my practice. Just show up as sincerely as I can and be willing to bring myself back when I see I've gone. To be here as best I can and to bring myself back when I've gone. Ah, what a relief that was. But this conceit of I am is taking ownership of our experience and thinking I should have it together. And it's rooted in somehow this misperception of, um, of agency, of control. And it can easily go into unworthiness or self-judgment. I remember on, on one retreat, um, it was my second three-month retreat in, in 79, the Dalai Lama who had just come to the U.S. for the first time um, a few months before, came to IMS to, um, to be with the yogis at the end, towards the end of the retreat. A great way to end a retreat, by the way, to have the Dalai Lama come. And he had this, um, he did just a Q&A, and uh, this guy raised his hand and he said, um, uh, Your Holiness, uh, do you have any suggestions for dealing with um, self-hatred and unworthiness. And the, the translator translated to the Dalai Lama and it, at first it didn't compute. It, he didn't understand the concept. And they went back and forth to, uh, to explain until at one point he finally got it. Oh, self-hatred. And then he looked at this guy and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine sitting for two and a half months and the Dalai Lama saying, you're wrong. (laughs) But he said it with great compassion. And then he said something to the effect of what makes you, this is what I got, what makes you think that um, everything else is part of the, the fabric of of the universe and somehow you're not good enough. You're, you're a mistake. This is real uh, misunderstanding. And I often thought, well, maybe if you're told since the time you were two or three that you're the embodiment of uh, the bodhisattva of compassion, you have some good self-image. But, <laughs> but particularly in, in our culture, it's, it, it's, it's so uh, endemic. Not good enough. There's a, a line I love in um, The Course in Miracles, this, this beautiful uh, Christian um, treatise that says, um, um, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. <clears throat> Who are you really? This is one of the gifts that, that practice 
shows that you're not who you thought you were. Seeing who you really are beyond the ideas and the concepts. What uh, Ajahn Sumedho in one of his books calls when your, your mind isn't obscuring things, there is the shining through of the divine is the way he puts it. That's who we are. This is, let's see. From uh, Nyoshil Kempo, another great Tibetan master. He says, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment is present in everyone. Its fundamental essence is forever perfect, pure, flawless. Its expressions are myriad. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. <clears throat> so, um, wanted to, um, besides just offering this as a contemplation, maybe offer some uh, different ways, uh, strategies to work with the comparing mind, the judging mind. That perhaps you already employ, but just to remind you or uh, maybe uh, connect you with your own wisdom. <clears throat> so the first and so important, so key is um, to be kind to yourself. Like I said in yesterday's uh, reflection, kind awareness is the key. And that is um, genuine compassion for the predicament and forgiveness for the predicament that you might find yourself in. <clears throat> And my uh, watershed moment, I'll share with you another personal story, watershed moment of, of genuine forgiveness uh, in practice was um, at a three-month retreat. It was, it was actually the first three-month retreat at IMS, 76. Um, and I was, I was doing slow walking, like I was saying a little while ago, and there was nobody in the, in the walking room and somebody came in who had just come on to the retreat. In the first two years of IMS, they tacked on a two-week retreat at the end of the three-month course. They just did it for a couple of years, and then they said, not such a good idea, because you can really feel somebody's energy when they come in. Probably you can feel when somebody's just come in here to the forest refuge. And this person came into the walking room and I had a feeling I was gonna, this is gonna look very bizarre to this person who is walking fast, but I wasn't gonna, I was 
playing a game, actually. I pretended I was Marcel Marceau, this particular, this particular walking. I said, okay, I'm going to see how slow I can go. Right? So that, that was the setup. And, of course, somebody comes in, because there was nobody around. I'm all by myself. I can do it. But I wasn't going to stop my game. Okay, I'll just keep it up. And I knew this was going to look really over the top. And after about two minutes, this person going back and forth, they bolted out of the room in which I was sure that it was the comparing mind that had gotten to them. And as they went past my field of vision, the thought came to me, wow, I really blew her mind. She must think I'm a great yogi. And then I heard in all its glory that ego and that presentation and look at me and it was like falling into this dungeon, this, this, this lower realm of disgusting ego. And I then started pacing back and forth like I was a caged tiger because I began to say, what a phony you are. Look at you. It's just all about you and how do you look? And I went back and forth and I said, I'll never get out of this mind. I'll never, what am I, who am I kidding? And after about 10 minutes of that, the thought occurred to me, the millions and millions of times I'd had that thought, but I just hadn't caught it. I was, just, I was clear enough to catch it but it was so much a part of me that it was just, it was right in there. And when I thought of all the millions of times that I practiced it, in this lifetime, and I was starting to think in terms of more than one lifetime at that point, which boggled my mind, there was this moment, this wave of genuine forgiveness and compassion and saying you are really trying your hardest just this is going to take a while and I said it with as I said just a real kindness to myself that I'd never experienced before you're really trying hard you love this stuff and you really are committed to, to waking up. Just be kind. That was a turning point in my, in my practice. So that's the first thing, to bring some kindness and forgiveness and compassion, self-compassion to your experience. And I think uh, I'll just take this opportunity to... Um, share the self-compassion practice, the mindful self-compassion practice. Uh, how many people are familiar with mindful self-compassion? Just one or two, okay. This is uh, um, a really beautiful um, 
sharing of um, self-metta put together by Kristin Neff and Christopher Germer, who are practitioners and, uh, and also academics. And um, uh, it's, it's really good. And there's some good books on self-compassion and the mindful way through self-compassion. But this is the self-compassion break, okay? And uh, you can't overdo it. <clears throat> Whenever you're giving, see you're giving yourself a hard time, here it is, four steps. First step, put your hand on your heart. You might, if you feel like it, try this with me. And right away, that um, releases oxytocin and uh, brings about some um, soothing, calming energy. And just feel that tenderness. And you might, if you want, you can close your eyes as you do it. And then three phrases, and you can make your own variations of them. First phrase, this is a moment of suffering. Or, this is really hard. Whatever you happen to be going through. Second phrase, suffering is a part of life. And you might think of all the people in the world who are going through what you might be going through right now. Whether it's anger or wanting or self-judgment or whatever. Suffering is a part of life and you can feel the common humanity in that. So you're not alone. Third phrase may I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. Just reminding yourself to be tender and kind. So this is a moment of suffering. This is hard. Suffering is a part of life. And may I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. And as you're doing it, you can both be the one who's receiving that tenderness, that little one inside, usually. I think we're just little boys and girls in big bodies. And you're also the one who's giving. You're the Kuan Yin right inside of you who can comfort yourself. There's a a quality of wholeness of both receiving and giving. That's a real completion. So that's one approach. <clears throat> Forgiveness and self-compassion. Another um, strategy or uh, approach with the judging mind, self-judgment particularly, is uh, just seeing the emptiness of the thought. Seeing how empty it is. This is just a thought that the mind has fabricated. I'm not good enough. 
or this isn't good enough, and you've believed it. And again, Joseph has a a really great instruction. If you haven't heard it before, uh, great teaching. If you're bothered by thoughts that are coming through your mind in the meditation hall, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. takes all the, the intensity and the drama out of them. I mean, you don't invite those thoughts in, do you? You don't say, oh, I'll, I'll have some, some self-judgment right now. That'll, that'll be good for me, you know. How about some self-doubt? Yeah. Or rage. Yeah, I could go for a little rage right now. It just comes all by itself. So to see you don't invite it in, Maybe you picked it up in a radio wave from somebody nearby. Who knows? But it, it's, it's, a, it's a useful kind of a thing that points to how empty those thoughts are. They're as real as you believe them to be and as empty as you see them to be. <clears throat> so that's the second one. Just seeing the insubstantiality, the emptiness of the thought. Another mm, tool in your toolkit around comparing or self-judging, <clears throat> sense of humor helps a lot. <clears throat> because at some point, and you may, maybe you know what this is like, you have a choice either to completely melt down or see the absurdity of this mind. Look at this mind. You know? And when you can move it from, oh gosh, look at my mind, to, oh, look at the mind and not take it personally, then you can be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. You know? The Buddha says, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed suffering, its cause, the end, the path leading to the end. This is your laboratory to explore the human experience. And when you can see it in that way, you don't take your thoughts quite so seriously. A sense of humor helps immeasurably. It's so easy to get serious and grim about this practice. We are not cultivating grimness. It's not one of the factors of enlightenment. Lighten up and if you can see and and bring a playfulness to practice, then um, there's some space there because you're not identifying with it in that moment. And sometimes the mind can be so tricky, it, it kind of creeps up from behind that, that uh, the thoughts that, uh, that snag you. But if you can see it with, with humor, it just changes everything. Mm. Mm. On, on one, one retreat, I use the, um, uh, I love the Third Zen Patriarch, uh, that piece of wisdom. 
and I use this one couplet that says, um, he says, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. I thought, okay, every time I notice a judging thought, I'm just going to say the burdensome practice of judging. Uh, I'll, I'll remember the rest of it, right? You know, just, oh, burdensome practice of judging. You, know, you dummy, oh, burdensome practice of judging. Um, and I go to the dining room. This is at the retreat center, particularly mealtimes. I would be saying it, you know, like, oh my goodness, how much they're taking the burdensome practice of judging, you know, you know. Or, like I said before, you know, oh, who do they think they are? Burdens of practice of judging. And I'd go through a meal and I'd be saying it like 50, 75 times at least in a meal. And it became obvious just how incessant this was. All I could do was laugh. (laughs) There it is again. Burdens of practice of judging. I know that one. And... uh, it helps to laugh, to not take it so seriously. <clears throat> Something else that you might find helpful is um, acting as if you were a Buddha. Acting as if you were somebody who um, didn't judge themselves. Just to pretend, oh, I wonder what it would be like to not carry that burden along. Oh, and sometimes just playing around, opening up to that channel. Oh, if I weren't me and I weren't in this head, what would it be like to be just fine with the way I am? You know, you can try it on for size and even just to play around with that and see the freedom that could come from it. Of course, then there's uh, taking refuge is a tremendous support as we've been doing as we did at the beginning of the talk, taking refuge in the Buddha. What does that mean to take refuge in the Buddha? Besides being inspired by that amazing human being that lived 25, 2600 years ago, when you're taking refuge in the Buddha, you are acknowledging that seed of enlightenment is in you. That's why the Buddha taught, because he saw that others had that same capacity. And, you know, as in Tibetan um, teachings, it's called bodhicitta, that seed of enlightenment, that awakened heart that is just obscured. That's one way to play around with acting as if. 
because that's who you really are when you aren't confused. So you might take to heart that taking refuge in the Buddha means discovering that Buddha nature, as Nyosho Kempo um, uh, taught, right in you, discovering it within your own stream of being. Taking refuge in the Dharma, that life is giving you what you need to wake up right now. It's not an accident when you get caught in your self-judgment it doesn't have to be a cause for defeat or discouragement. This is an opportunity to awaken, to see things clearly. And every time you see it clearly without judging it, you are freeing yourself of that, um, of that trap. <clears throat> Refuge in the Dharma. Pema Chodron has this great line. She says, take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Not, oh, what a mess I am. There I am again. But, oh, I'm seeing it. Oh, that's how it works. Oh, that's how my mind gets caught. A practice, a main practice for me with the judging mind I'll share it now. For about two years, my main practice was, it was a variation of the self-compassion practice because I saw my judging mind so strongly. I probably have a better judging mind than you. <clears throat> and uh, I realized this is the forward edge of my practice. And for two years, my, this is my main practice. This is what I did. You can, if you want, you can try this on for yourself. So when I saw a judgment, you know, oh, you are just all over the map. Where you're, you're so unconcentrated. And I'd see, oh, judging. And you can, of course, note it, judging, judging, which is just another judgment. Or I changed it around. This is what I did. And if you want, you can try this variation. Close your eyes, those who want, and put your hand on your cheek. And as if you were Kuan Yin doing the noting, or the kindest grandmother, silently say in the kindest voice, oh, judging, judging, like it's okay, judging. Just let yourself feel it if, if you've got your hand on your cheek. Just for a moment, feel the tenderness there. Oh, judging, judging. You feel it? That was my main practice for two years. And I, I didn't do this all the time. Uh, I would when I'd forget or when I'd f kind of hear the harshness, but after a while, the tone of noting became the compassion practice. So every time I would be judging, it was like, oh, another opportunity to practice compassion. 
oh, great. You know, oh, judging, it's okay, dear. <clears throat> so taking refuge in the Dharma is really seeing, oh, this is another opportunity for me to wake up. And then, of course, there's taking refuge in the Sangha, that we're all doing this together, supporting each other with our, our sincerity of practice. And people have been doing this for thousands of years. And there's encouragement that comes from knowing that many people have freed their mind and it started out perhaps not so different than yours from your um, confusion. It's really possible to be free. The Buddha has this one line that I, I love. He said, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible, and this is why I teach. So thinking of Sangha, all the people who have gone through this journey, and you can feel the collective support and energy of that. <clears throat> so, the comparing mind, the judging mind, judging yourself, comparing with others, not being good enough. When you really see clearly, which is what we're trying to do here, when you really see clearly, the comparing is simply a mental fabrication. And when you see the sincerity and the, the good heart and the pureness, the purity that perhaps you touch from time to time when nobody's looking, you can get in touch with the mm, the shining through of the divine, as Sumedho says. And in that, you see, what am I comparing? All of this is just obscurations covering who I really am. And can you compare and say, my pure awareness is not as good as yours? Or my unconditional love is better than yours? It doesn't make any sense. There's no comparison, literally no comparison. It's just a, a play of consciousness moving through us. So when you see that tendency and that habit, don't feel discouraged. Take delight in that which sees the dukkha. And see, this is, this is the, the heart of practice, as, uh, as Trungpa Rinpoche uh, used to say, this is manure for bodhi. All the stuff that gets in the way, ah, that's where the juice is, that's where the richness is, that's where the compassion is, not just for yourself, but for everybody. We're all in the same predicament. So I'll, I'll end with a, a poem that mm, I love by um, 
favorite poet of mine, Dana Falls, called Awakening Now about this subject. She says, why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So let's sit for a moment before we do the sharing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.